this month, Canadian officials made a major announcement. After a 15-year court battle, the government agreed to a $32 billion settlement with First Nations communities, who represent the largest group of Indigenous people in the country. Canada has taken another significant step in its attempts to make amends for the decades of abuse suffered by its Indigenous people. This is History Making in Canada, a press conference to announce a milestone in addressing mistreatment and discrimination against First Nations families. It's the largest class action settlement in Canadian history. The Canadian Prime Minister says the settlement's the first step towards healing. The settlement had to do with the country's child welfare system and how it violated the rights of some Indigenous children. In a press conference, Mark Miller, the Canadian Minister for Indigenous Relations, called the settlement historic. This is the largest settlement in Canadian history. No amount of money can reverse the harms experienced by First Nations children. However, historic injustices require historic reparations. Our colleague Kim McRail has been following the core battle. It's one of the biggest settlements related to a government's relationship with Indigenous people globally. And it's just one piece of what I think is a much broader reckoning that um, the government in Canada and that Canadians are having in thinking about the legacy and about the history of the relationship with Indigenous people in the country. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Tuesday, January 18th. Coming up on the show, why Canada agreed to pay Indigenous people the largest settlement of its kind. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. The recent settlement is about the treatment of Indigenous kids in the Canadian child welfare system. But it takes place in the shadow of a long and infamous history around something called residential schools. Back in the 1800s, Canada started funding residential schools that were meant to separate Indigenous children from their families. Our colleague Kim says that the children who attended these schools were often taken from their families by force or coercion. And it was done with a specific purpose. There's actually quite a lot on record from different politicians at the time, including the Prime Minister at the time, Sir John A. Macdonald. And he talked about the need to separate Indigenous children from their families, to put those children in schools where they were separated. And it's generally the idea is assimilation. The goal, Macdonald said in 1883, was for the children to, quote, acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. In 2015, a commission appointed by the Canadian government said the treatment of Indigenous children in the schools was part of a broader policy of, quote, cultural genocide. Kids at the schools weren't allowed to speak their own languages. A lot of people have stories about being punished for speaking to a brother or sister or um, using their own language. They weren't allowed to practice their culture or religion. And conditions in the schools were often brutal. 
children who were sent to the schools, they generally had poor diets. There was overcrowding that contributed to the spread of diseases. And there were a lot of reports of physical and sexual abuse. Canada closed the last of its residential schools in the late 1990s. But the government and Indigenous leaders alike said the effects on Indigenous communities extended well beyond that period. A lot of residential school survivors, people who went to the schools that I've talked to for interviews, you know, one thing they'll talk about is um, that their experience at the schools had a huge impact on their ability to parent their own children. If you don't have a role model for parenting um, because you grew up away from your parents and you often were subjected to, um, you know, really rigid, almost not parental figures, but, you know, administrators and teachers, you grew up without the experience of a parent saying, I love you or showing affection. So the impact was not just on these children in the moments that they were in these schools. It really affected them for the rest of their lives and then their kids' lives as well. Exactly, yes. So all of this trauma that happened for kids who were sent to the schools, it gets passed on. While the major settlement announced this month isn't directly related to these schools, it is related to their lingering effects. Effects that Cindy Blackstock experienced firsthand. There was racism all around me. I didn't know what it was back then. I just saw that people had lower expectations of me, that I was going to grow up to be on welfare, that I was going to grow up to be a drunk, that there was nothing out there for me. Cindy is a member of the Gitson tribe in Canada. And in the 1980s, she started a career as a child welfare worker. Even though residential schools were starting to be phased out by then, Cindy saw that kids were still being taken from their homes, just in a different way. Rather than being taken to residential schools, they were being pulled into the foster care system. I actually started a job in college in the 1980s working in a group home. And um, what I noticed is how many First Nations kids there were there. It was clear to me that they came from very poor homes. It was clear to me that they came from First Nations communities, which are known as reservations in the United States, that these places didn't have the same kind of access to public services, basic things like sanitation, electricity, water that everybody else was getting. And that whole cascade of inequality, coupled with the trauma of residential schools, meant that there were more First Nations kids in care than everyone else. Cindy wondered why so many children living on Indigenous reserves were showing up in the foster care system. She'd heard from workers on reserves who said they didn't have enough funding to support Indigenous families, but she wanted to see it for herself. So she decided to go get a job working in a reserve. I honestly thought they were over-exaggerating. But when I went over there, I was stunned. The reason there was such a big difference between her old job and her new one at a reserve was because of where the funding came from. Most child welfare services in Canada are funded by provinces, which are like U.S. states. But services on Indigenous reserves are funded by the federal government. And Cindy thought the federal government wasn't spending nearly enough money. On reserves, it was way harder to get the resources she needed to care for kids. She remembers going to see a boy who needed equipment to help him stand. Now, if it was a low-income family off-reserve, all I'd have to do is get the proper medical professional to write up a note and send it into the government, and they'd pay for it. On-reserve, this kid was held together with duct tape, and I called up the federal government, and they said, oh, he got a wheelchair three years ago, so he's not eligible for a standing frame for another two years. I said, what is he supposed to do in the meantime? And that inequality was just 
so stark and so um, so obvious to me, it really honed in my sensibility about the grave injustice, the apartheid public services that were piling up on the hopes and dreams of not only children in that nation, but across the country too. The Canadian government said it couldn't comment on this particular case, but it says it has made improvements to the delivery of services since then. Still, Cindy saw that the inadequate funding was leading to a bigger issue. It meant problems that kids and their families grappled with. Problems that might result in a child getting sent to foster care weren't getting addressed. Poverty, poor housing, substance misuse related to multi-generational trauma and domestic violence. If we were able to get supports in there, we'll be able to keep more children safely in their families. Even though Indigenous kids make up less than 8% of children under the age of 15, they account for more than half of all kids in foster care, according to 2016 Canadian census data. Seeing how all this played out in the lives of Indigenous kids made Cindy feel helpless. I knew someone had to do something about it. I was equally convinced it wasn't me. I thought there's got to be somebody out there who's smarter than I am, who knows more about this stuff. But then she decided to take matters into her own hands. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In the early 2000s, Cindy Blackstock became the executive director of an advocacy group called the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. And in 2007, she and her organization partnered with another group to file a complaint to the Canadian Human Rights Commission. Here's Kim again. Basically, the complaint said that there were inequities between the two systems, that the funding for child welfare services on reserves was not as good as what was provided in the rest of the country. And she alleged that that amounted to discrimination on the grounds of race and ethnic origin. What was the Canadian government's response to her complaint? Generally, rather than um, dealing with the substance of the complaint, uh, the initial response, and actually over a number of years, was kind of to fight it on legal grounds. Mm -hmm. Sort of like going after the technicalities. That's right, yeah. The government argued that it only provided funding, not the actual service. And therefore, it shouldn't be held accountable for how good or bad the service was. The complaint went before the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, and a hearing began in 2013. Three years later, the tribunal reached a decision. In 2016, they ultimately ruled that uh, the complaint was founded, that Blackstock was right in alleging that there was discrimination on the grounds of race and ethnic origin. So it was a pretty landmark ruling, and they said the government should stop what they called discriminatory conduct. But the court case still wasn't over. Canada kept arguing over the case, even as it got hit with class-action lawsuits. 
But last year, something happened that drove the case closer to a resolution. And it had to do with those residential schools, where children had been forced into assimilation decades earlier. There's a developing story out of British Columbia. A First Nation says the remains of more than 200 children have been located, buried on the site of a former residential school. In fact, the largest residential And these unmarked graves weren't just found at one school, they were found at several. Researchers found evidence of more than 1,000 graves in total. Kim says the graves had a big impact on the case. I think this really shifted public attitudes toward the government's relationship with Indigenous people. You know, people have heard for years in Canada about the legacy of residential schools, but actually hearing about unmarked graves being found, I think that brought it home to Canadians in a way that really has never been the case before and really brought this issue into people's consciousness much more. And I think it's hard to imagine that there wasn't some knowledge of that on the government's part in dealing with this settlement. I've always felt this case in some ways is spiritually guided. That's Cindy Blackstock again. And those little spirits of those children in those unmarked graves were able to awaken the Canadian consciousness in a way that was never possible before. So do you think it did have an impact on the final settlement? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. After the graves were found, the government lost an appeal over the question of compensation. And so earlier this month, after a lot of legal back and forth, Canada finally announced its historic settlement, which addresses both the tribunal's rulings and related class actions. The government agreed to pay the equivalent of 32 billion U.S. dollars to Indigenous people. Roughly half the money is going to kids and their families who were wrongly pulled into the foster care system or who received inadequate services on reserves. Each will receive at least $30,000. The other half will go toward fixing the child welfare system, in part by funding services to help prevent kids from needing foster care in the first place. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said at a press conference that this is just the start of reforming the system. We've signed these agreements. Now we have to make the changes. We have to get the compensation out, but we also have to make sure we're transforming child and family services for First Nations kids across this country so that we break the cycle that continues to harm children in this country. The settlement still has to get court approval. And Cindy says implementing change will take time. I know I should feel over the moon, but I always address change. I always measure change at the level of children themselves. So I asked myself, what changed for kids today? And all they heard was another government promise. So I think I'll feel over the moon when I actually see these services to support families roll out. The government said they're going to do it by April 1st. When we see young people in care and those who are aging out of care getting support into young adulthood, when we start seeing the federal government be really serious about addressing the dramatic inequalities in water and other types of things that continue to exist in Canadian society, where they no longer make excuses for these apartheid public services. I think once we get there, then I'll be over the moon. That's all for today, Tuesday, January 18th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode by Paul Vieira. 
Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.